Welcome. You're listening to a podcast by the International Bolshevik Tendency, a Marxist organization fighting for international working class revolution to overthrow global capitalism. We can be found online at Bolshevik.org, on Facebook at Bolsheviks, on Twitter and YouTube at IBT1917, and Instagram at Bolsheviks1917. This talk is entitled Trotsky on Fascism. It was originally delivered at an online IBT study class on 15 May 2022. Okay, so if we're talking about fascism, the first thing we need to do really is think about what we mean by the word fascism. It's a word that gets thrown around to describe a variety of right-wing dictatorial regimes and also far-right movements that don't hold state power. But the importance of Trotsky's analysis of fascism, which is what we've been reading in, in preparation for this meeting, Um, which was written as fascism was first developing in the 1930s, is that he concretely analysed the role played by different classes and different political ideologies as fascism developed. And this is an analysis that's still of of much value for us today, though, of course, it does need to be applied to different circumstances. So Trotsky described fascism rather colourfully at one point as a broad current whose ideology is composed of all the putrid vapours of disintegrating bourgeois society. So what does this mean? Fascist movements, uh, extra-parliamentary mass mobilisations of angry, downwardly mobile, petty bourgeois elements such as small business owners, managers, the self-employed, as well as what we call the lumpen proletariat, which is the permanently unemployed, small-scale criminals, etc., and and also some elements of the working class. In a sense, it's a movement of the victims of capitalism, the victims of the crisis of capitalism, but they are being mobilised in the service of capitalism, and that's kind of the, the irony that lies within fascism. The police and the military are also often key constituencies of the fascist groups, Um, Special paramilitary forces are created to be the kind of street fighting wing. And this street thuggery and physical attacks on leftists, trade unionists and minorities are the thing that that cohere the fascist organisations. But there's also a kind of ideological overlay, which is characterised by ultra-nationalism, xenophobia and a kind of defence of the ordinary person. So... Key to this is the idea of the petty bourgeoisie, which is a class that sits between the two fundamental classes of capitalist society, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. In stable times, the petty bourgeoisie will fall in line, as Trotsky puts it, marched obediently in the capitalist harness. But in times of crisis, it it will split apart, a component going with the bourgeoisie, a component going with (coughs) the the proletariat, because it's not a class that has its own means of production. It's not a class that that can rule society in its own name. So as fascism first emerged in Western Europe after World War I, capitalism was in acute crisis and parliamentary politics was discredited and was unable to address the anxiety of the petty bourgeoisie at the time. 
And it's at this point that capitalism needs to mobilize that petty bourgeoisie against the working class in order to defend capitalism. The ruling class fears that the alternative is that sections of the petty bourgeoisie will support a revolutionary proletariat. In fact, revolutionary opportunities had developed after World War I, both in Italy and in Germany, but the proletariat had failed to seize power due to the political immaturity of the Communist Party and the betrayals of the social democracy. Fascism arose, therefore, in response to the failure of revolution. And in these circumstances, the dissatisfied petty bourgeoisie will seek an alternative leadership. This is the way Trotsky describes it. The petty bourgeoisie is economically dependent and politically atomized. That is why it cannot conduct an independent policy. It needs a leader who inspires it with confidence. This individual or collective leadership, i.e. a personage or party, can be given to it by one or the other of the fundamental classes, either the big bourgeoisie or the proletariat. Fascism unites and arms the scattered masses. Out of human dust, it organizes combat detachments. It thus gives the petty bourgeoisie the illusion of being an independent force. It begins to imagine that it will really command the state. It is not surprising that these illusions and hopes turn the head of the petty bourgeoisie. So fascism in power is the rule of finance capital over the state apparatus, the education system, the press, so on. And it has its own form of trade unions, which of course are no longer what we would consider to be trade unions. The real workers' organisations are destroyed and any independent mobilisation of the working class is made impossible. So in Italy, the fascist movement was founded by former syndicalists and socialists who decisively broke from internationalism to promote nationalism and territorial expansion. In 1922, Benito Mussolini and his National Fascist Party led the infamous March on Rome with their paramilitary black shirts, which resulted in them taking over state power. Shortly after, in Germany, Hitler's Nazi Party, with its brown shirts, steadily built support by attacking trade unionists, the left, Jews and other minorities before taking power in January 1933. In both cases, the fascist movements were supported by big, big, big business interests that saw them as a weapon against organised labour and a means of decapitating the mass parties of the left. So to look at the example of Germany, which Trotsky wrote about extensively, the Nazis overcame the powerful German workers' movement so easily because it was deeply divided internally between the, the Communist Party and the Social Democracy. Both of these parties failed to recognise the, the distinct nature of fascism, what was actually going on, that it was not business as usual for capitalism but a specific and violent response to crisis, a deadly threat to all sectors of the working class and therefore requiring special tactics from the workers' movement. On the one hand, the Social Democrats argued for support to a series of bourgeois leaders they saw as a lesser evil than fascism. 
These same bourgeois politicians passed power to Hitler at the point where they became incapable of dealing with the capitalist crisis. But the Communist Party was also responsible for the rise of Hitler. They called the social democratic policy social fascism, i.e. an equal part of the problem, and declared that no alliance with them was possible. The KPD leader Ernst Tellmann actually suggested that a Nazi government would soon discredit itself and open the door for the communists to take over. After Hitler, our turn, he said. Trotsky responded to this as follows. No matter how true it is that the social democracy, by its whole policy, prepared the blossoming of fascism, it is no less true that fascism comes forward as a deadly threat, primarily to that same social democracy, all of whose magnificence is inextricably bound with parliamentary democratic pacifist forms and methods of government. So because of this, because fascism was a threat to the entire workers' movement, Trotsky called for a workers' united front against fascism. He called for this over and over again during the 1930s. He argued that the vast combined weight of the Communist Party and the SPD should join forces, despite their other differences, to prevent Hitler taking power. History, of course, might have been very different if they had taken this advice. The policy of the Workers' United Front means that different organisations will maintain organisational and political independence while undertaking joint militant action against the fascists. As Trotsky argued, no common platform with the social democracy or with the leaders of the German trade unions, no common publications, banners, placards, march separately, but strike together. Agree only how to strike, whom to strike and when to strike. Such an agreement can be concluded even with the devil himself and with his grandmother. Trotsky argued, that if the SPD leaders agreed to work together with the KPD to crush the fascist threat, then the working class and oppressed would win a major victory. On the other hand, if these leaders refused to cooperate, they would expose themselves, expose their political bankruptcy to their followers and thereby hasten both their own demise and the growth of the communist movement, which at that time Trotsky was arguing from a position um, within the, the Communist Party. He had not yet decisively broken with the Third International and the German Communist Party. That was to follow very shortly after the capitulation to fascism. So how do we apply these lessons from the 1930s and the lessons of Trotsky's writing to the types of fascism that we encounter today? We're clearly not in a situation when the workers' movement has experienced recent defeat and revolutions. But the workers' movement is extremely weak. And as capitalist crisis deepens, it shows little chance, little sign of providing revolutionary leadership to the working class, let alone the petty bourgeoisie. So it's no surprise that we see the rise of fascist movements across the world. In France, during the recent elections, on both sides of the war in Ukraine, and in small bands attempting to recruit from movements of popular dissatisfaction, the anti-vax movement, Trump supporters, Brexit supporters here in Britain, 
etc. But there is no current example of fascists holding state power in the sense that Mussolini or Hitler did. Of course, the British Tories, Macron in France, Erdogan in Turkey, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Trump, Biden, etc., have all been called fascist by the left. And it's true that they have some elements in common with fascism, and they certainly, in some senses, enable fascism to grow. But overall, they are running states that maintain some semblance of bourgeois democracy and have not mobilised the petty bourgeoisie on the streets to crush the ability of the working class to organise, going back to Trotsky's definitions. It's important that we recognise the difference between these business as usual bourgeois politicians and fascism, so we are not repeating the errors of the German left in the 1930s. So at the end of our reading today, there's a section of Trotsky writing about the situation in America, and he touches on this. He says, we must not identify war dictatorship, the dictatorship of the military machine, of the staff, of finance capital, with a fascist dictatorship. For the latter, there is first necessary a feeling of desperation of large masses of the people. When the revolutionary parties betray them, when the vanguard of workers shows its incapacity to lead the people to victory, then the farmers, the small businessmen, the unemployed, the soldiers, etc., become capable of supporting a fascist movement, but only then. A military dictatorship is purely a bureaucratic institution reinforced by the military machine and based upon the disorientation of the people and their submission to it. After some time, their feelings can change and they can become rebellious against the dictatorship. So what he's arguing there is against the idea of a simplification of, of fascism equals dictatorship, which you hear all the time. I hear this in Britain around um, the Tories making changes to the policing laws. It's, oh God, we're now living under a fascist dictatorship, but we need to recognise what is and isn't a fascist dictatorship in order to fight it. So the, the fascism we deal with today is much smaller than the threat that Trotsky was writing about, but it would be foolish to wait until it wasn't. History shows that the only way to effectively deal with this threat is by inflicting a series of humiliating and decisive defeats on the fascists before they are able to grow. Fascist movements recruit on the basis of displaying strength and power. So they don't care about denunciations from the media or politicians or, you know, vicars um, and priests. Um, so vigils, teachings, prayer services and that sort of thing are no use against fascism. Nor, nor is debating fascism. It, fascism is not a set of ideas to be debated, but it's a menace to working people and the oppressed that must be ruthlessly crushed through the mass mobilisation of its intended victims. So almost 100 years later, Trotsky's policy of the Workers' United Front still applies today. Workers of various political tendencies need to come together around the specific issue to defend the immediate interests of the working class and oppressed against the threat of fascism. Such actions do not depend on all participants agreeing on all other political questions. The essential requirement is a willingness to take active measures to drive the fascists off the street. 
So here in Britain, I've been involved in the anti-fascist movement for a few years. It's it's very small. It's often influenced by anarchism, often heavily influenced by anarchism. But it's provided some framework for organising between people from different political tendencies and has had some minor successes. But in my involvement in this organising work, I have also seen a lot of examples of, of what, what is being done wrong, what is missing from this fight against fascism, what we should do and what we should not do in order to evict, effectively fight fascism. One key thing that is largely missing is involvement of the trade unions, of workers organised at the point of production um, as the organised workers' movement. We know that workers in the trade unions have the strategic, social and economic power to lead all the potential victims of fascism into action. For instance, transport workers could control the movement of the fascist and the anti-fascist forces, hold up the fascist train, let the anti-fascist train go through, etc. Union contingents that have been trained on the picket line to, to hold a line, to work together, um, can be far more organised and effective than, than disparate forces on the left. And the fascist deep hostility to the trade unions shows that they know that the unions are an organised threat to them. But this kind of trade union mobilisation is extremely rare. And it can only be achieved if we challenge the privileged union leadership who we see them providing, you know, paper endorsements and signing petitions and giving speeches, but very seldom do they actually mobilise their members on the street against the fascists. And there's other reasons why it's not always possible to collaborate. We see anti-fascist mobilisations that hold a rally completely on the other side of town from the fascists because they want to attract liberal speakers to their platform who won't go anywhere where it's dangerous. Um, on the other hand, we see strategies that rely on small bands of clandestine street fighters without an accompanying mass mobilisation. And we also see a kind of sectarian approach that goes, we need union contingents to fight the fascists. So until that happens, we won't do anything at all. We won't get our hands dirty. So none of these strategies are actually going to work. And another one that is, is often raised that really doesn't work is the liberal reformist strategy of relying on the capitalist state to squash or ban the far right. I've seen this happen. I've seen um, there was due to be a fascist march in East London a decade ago now, I think. So they put in a, a ban on any marches in East London. So we tried to have a march to say, yay, the fascists weren't marching, which of course made our march illegal because the state had banned it. The state is inevitably going to use this type of thing against the left. So again, Trotsky wrote about this, writing about France in 1934. He said, fascism binds unconscious and all those who say that the physical struggle is impermissible or hopeless and demand of Prime Minister Dumerge the disarmament of his fascist guard. Nothing is so dangerous for the proletariat, especially in the present situation, as the sugared poison of false hopes. Nothing increases the insolence of the fascists so much 
as flabby pacifism on the part of the workers' organisations. Nothing so destroys the confidence of the middle classes in the working class as temporising passivity and the absence of the will to struggle. And we can see today that even though the ruling class is not yet ready to hand power to the fascists, we know that the ruling class keeps the fascists in, in reserve for emergency, for crisis. So the state will, to a certain point, side with the fascists, despite a kind of public pretense of, of even-handedness. So it's clear that we can't rely on the cops and the courts or other forces of the capitalist state to neutralise the fascist threat. We often see on demonstrations the police sympathies on show, they turn a, a blind eye to fascist attacks on counter demonstrators and then they protect the fascists as they're walking, walking through, you know, a crowd of local residents who don't want them parading past their ho homes. I've seen that myself. So in these circumstances, even the best United uh, anti-fascist United Front is not enough. Within the United Front, all the organisations, because we've brought together people from a, a huge variety of political views who all have an interest in defeating the fascists, and all these organisations should have the right to argue for these views within the United Front while also adhering to the agreed-upon basis of unity. So the United Front is the first step towards an effective response to fascist terror. It addresses the immediate needs of the moment and it provides this forum for the political ideas of different organisations to be tested and debated in practice. So the fascists recruit, they build by using poverty, unemployment, homelessness and other symptoms of capitalist austerity. They're used by the fascists to divide the working class. So uh, what we need to do is, is turn this around. We need to, to point to these things and lay the blame where it actually belongs um, at capitalism. That to stop the fascists recruiting these dissatisfied layers and, and blaming these things on the left as they, they often do. These social problems on which fascism feeds can ultimately only be addressed by a militant workers' movement under the leadership of a Leninist Revolutionary Party and in an anti-fascist united front. That is what we would be arguing for. We need a party that's involved at every level in the current struggles of the workers and oppressed that doesn't make these programmatic concessions that we see to social democracy, doesn't street, seek strategic alliances with bourgeois forces, which is never the solution. The process of fighting fascism, or in fact dealing with many other individual specific issues, will demonstrate in practice the links that exist. The links between economic inequality, sexism, racism, state violence, and other manifestations of oppression under capitalism. Fascism is ultimately a weapon in the hands of the bourgeoisie. So to destroy it once and for all requires overthrowing the capitalist system that breeds it. Thank you. <laughs>